If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We are in Matthew chapter 21 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through, through the book of Matthew. And I've titled this a parable of judgment on Christ's rejectors. Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. This is a parable. There has a, a, some interpretive challenges here. Help me to uh, present it clearly. And so, Lord, we ask now for the Holy Spirit to be uh, the real teacher, who is the real teacher behind the scenes, so working in our hearts as we study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, you work down through the outline. You come, uh, the theme, of course, is Christ the King. And then we've come in our outline to chapters 21 through uh, 23, the formal rejection of the King. For three years, Christ had, in effect, presented his messianic credentials to the nation of Israel. And this climaxed in what we commonly call his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which was really his official presentation to the nation as her Messiah in fulfillment of Daniel 9.25. Well, sadly, the nation's religious leaders, really representing the nation, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. In the Passion Week, we call that the, the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, building up to the crucifixion. In the Passion Week, we see the hostility level on the part of the religious leaders rising as Jesus repeatedly uh, confronted or was confronted by these religious leaders. Here's how we believe it unfolded as far as uh, the chronology of the week. <clears throat> on Sunday, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over uh, Jerusalem. And then he uh, inspects, as it were, observes the temple activities. Didn't do anything on that day, just observed. And then on Monday, he comes back into town and he curses the fig tree. And then he clears the temple. Tuesday, he explains the withered fig tree. And then there's temple controversies with the religious leaders, which is where we are in our study now. Well, on Tuesday, as Jesus returned to the temple, <clears throat> he was confronted by the chief priests and the elders, challenging him on where he got the authority to do these things. I mean, it's not... I mean, who, who is it that just goes into the temple and clears the place? Where'd you get this authority? Well, Jesus, in turn, asked them a question about where the authority, if you will of John the Baptist's ministry came from, and they refused to answer. So Jesus also refused to answer their question as well. But then Jesus proceeded to put three parables to them, each one showing that the great issue before them is either the acceptance or the rejection of him as the Messiah. And so here's where we are. Note these three parables. Parable number one, we studied this last week, uh, rejection of John the Baptist. That was the issue, and Jesus' ministry is tied to that. Now, today, parable two, uh, rejection of the Son, and then there's one more parable as we get into chapter 22, rejection of the invitation. So in the first parable, Jesus tied his ministry to that of John the Baptist, both which found their authority in God as seen in the prophetic scriptures. Now in the second parable, Jesus shows even more directly that he himself is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies that are found in the Old Testament scriptures. 
This second parable, the parable of the landowner, finds its uh, parallel in Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12, and also Luke 20, 9 through 19. So let's pick it up together, uh, chapter 21 and verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. This is a parable. He states it. Here here another parable. Uh, The word another connects this parable with the previous one in which Jesus had said that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would enter the kingdom before the priest, the chief priests and the elders. So, So this second parable now builds on the first one. Now a parable is a spiritual lesson in which there is really essentially one main point. Uh, And uh, note as we dissect this parable, uh, note the subjects. In this parable, the landowner represents God. Uh, The vineyard represents Israel. The vine dressers represent the spiritual leaders in Israel. The servants represent the prophets. And the son represents Jesus, the Messiah. And the main idea is that these religious leaders wickedly reject the son who is the Messiah. Now, planting a vineyard was quite an undertaking involving a lot of prep work. First, the owner would have to build a stone hedge around it to protect it from wild animals or from thieves. Uh, Then he would put in place a wine press, which is going to be necessary if you're going to produce wine. And uh, this wine press would be used to crush the grapes as they uh, work through the process of making the wine. And then a tower had to be built so that surveillance could be maintained over the property. The rabbi stipulated that this tower should be 15 feet high and 6 feet square. The vineyard is a common symbol for Israel in the scriptures, as found in the Old Testament. Well, having prepared the vineyard, the owner then leased it to vine dressers. And he went into a far country, as the parable goes, indicating that some time lapsed between the vine dressers really giving uh, the responsibility and and giving the obligation to bring forth fruit and share the harvest with the owner. Verse 34. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The vintage time was the harvest time. And at harvest time, the owner sent his servants to the tenants to receive what was right in terms of the fruit of the harvest, really in terms of the rent. Uh, you know, the owner would receive part of the harvest. Here's what they did. Verse 35, And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Well, to say the least, uh, these servants were not well received by the tenants. They beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, these servants are representative of the prophets of Israel who repeatedly sought to call Israel back to God And were constantly persecuted and oppressed. By the way, the fruit that God was looking for was essentially faith, sincere worship, and obedience. God was looking for the allegiance that belongs to him as God. And his servants, the prophets, continually called the people back to this. But they were not generally well received in the process. 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did likewise to them. So the landowner is pretty patient, it would seem. 
He didn't just send, well, 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 they didn't receive the one, so I'll just stop there. No, he kept sending more servants. Sent more servants. And they too were brutally treated in the same fashion. I mean, there's a consistent pattern of rejection going on here. Now, most all the prophets in Israel were treated badly. In terms of mistreatment, no one would normally or naturally volunteer or, or sign up to be a prophet. Uh, you have to be called. And it was a hard calling. Uh, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, summarized what had happened. And he says in Acts 7, 51, 52, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's talking to the religious leaders here. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? There's a consistent pattern. And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers. Verse 37, as the parable continues. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Finally, last of all, sends his son. The climax of the story here. Thinking that surely they will have some regard for him. Verse 38. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. The vine dressers were ruthless. They recognized who the son was as the heir, the one who rightfully this rightfully belongs to. They recognized who the son was, but they had zero regard for him and discussed among themselves a plot to kill him and then seize his inheritance. Now, we know from verse 45 that this parable essentially targeted the chief priests and the Pharisees. That is, the religious leaders. On one level, they recognized the truth of who Christ was. That is, they knew his claim very well to be the Son of God. Remember uh, what they said to Pilate? Here was their really main complete, uh, complaint before Pilate. Uh, John 19, 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And here's their, here's their issue. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die. Because... He made himself the son of God. They knew. They knew exactly what his claims were. In John 11, we find that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders were really worried, saying, quote, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe on him. John eleven forty eight, And therefore, the text says that they actively went about plotting to put him to death. Now, this was now just a few days later, and this parable was spot on in that even at this very moment, they were plotting how to kill Jesus. That's the background here. Uh, note in the parable, the motive here is greed and control. They want what rightfully belongs to the heir, to the son, to Jesus. They, as powerful leaders in Israel, wanted what rightfully belonged to the Son. 
And this comes back to the issue of authority that the chief priests and the elders raised with Jesus in the temple. This was about power, spiritual position, and control. In effect, these religious leaders were demanding the spiritual lordship position of controlling authority that rightfully belongs only to the Son. John MacArthur says the murder of the Son was coldly premeditated. The growers did not mistake him for another slave, but knew exactly who he was. It was for this very reason that he was the son that they planned his murder in order to seize his inheritance. They knew he was God's son, but refused to accept and honor him as such. Verse 39. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Well, Jesus here prophetically, in the form of this parable flat out tells them what is about to happen. They took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And this is exactly what they did to Jesus in just a few short days. The language here hints at the fact that Jesus was killed outside the city. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. D.A. Carson says, for six months, Jesus has been telling his disciples that the rulers at Jerusalem would kill him. Very specific, it's going to be the rulers. Now he tells the rulers themselves, albeit in a parable form, which at some level, the leaders understand. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. And I believe when he told this parable story, I believe he did so with great expression that really made it live. And so when he asked the question about what's the owner of the vineyard going to do here, the chief priests and the elders were drawn into the story. And they just kind of blurted out, verse 41, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Even these wicked spiritual leaders got the application. Uh, the vine dressers were so egregiously wrong in what they were doing that it called out for moral indignation and judgment. And so they said, He will destroy those wicked men and rent out the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him their fruits. Again, MacArthur says, they no doubt were highly pleased uh, with this uh, unusual opportunity to parade their self-righteousness before Jesus. Uh, they rightly assessed the proper ending of the parable, that the irate owner would first severely punish the wicked growers and then replace them with others who are reliable. So they made the proper application of judgment, which they didn't even realize at the time really applied to them, their own answer was self-condemning. Ed Glasscock says, ironically, their correct answer had just described their own fate. And so, appropriately, Christ proceeded to make application against them. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. 
And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus is the only one recorded in the New Testament scriptures that ever said, have you never read in the scriptures? I mean, Jesus coined this, right? I mean, this is Jesus. And this is the fourth time as recorded in the book of Matthew that Jesus questioned their reading of the scriptures. Now, he wasn't talking to unchurched people here, unsynagogue people. I mean, these are the spiritual leaders. And this really served as a rebuke, as if to say they should know this from the scriptures. As if to say if they really knew the scriptures, they should get this. Haven't you ever read? It's right there. And as spoken to these religious leaders, it was really a stinging rebuke. And really a very highly offensive thing to say. As these religious leaders prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures. They were the experts. Well, Jesus at this point, to reinforce the parables, main point, quoted from Psalm 118, which involves a change of metaphors, and yet still makes the main point. The same main point that's being made in the parable. Jesus' precise use of scriptures, using just the right scripture, at just the right time, in just the right setting, was astounding. I mean, he quoted here from Psalm 118, 22, and 23. And here's what it says. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The thing that is amazing about it is that just two days before this, the crowd in chant had been applying a portion of this very same psalm to Jesus at the time of the triumphal entry. Remember? Same psalm within the context of just a few verses. Psalm 118, 25, 26. Save now. That, that's what Hosanna means. Save now. I pray, O Lord, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And then we, we read. Here's, here's how it went in the triumphal entry. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before him and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Pharisees, at the time of the triumphal entry, were appalled that the people were crying out to Jesus and applying this messianic text from Psalm 118 to Jesus. In Luke 19, verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They knew the scripture well. They knew it was messianic. And they knew it spoke in reference to Yahweh the Lord, and therefore they were appalled that it was being applied to Jesus. But now, just two days later, Jesus again quotes from this very same psalm in the same immediate context within just a few verses. And the point is, it all applies to him as the Messiah. This is his story. They really needed to stop and think about what was happening. The psalm says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders, you see, are the leaders. And they rejected the stone. 
that ends up being the chief cornerstone. That's what their own scriptures that they knew so well said. He's quoting scripture to them. This was happening right here. They as the builders were at this very moment in the process of rejecting Jesus. The rejected one. They're living it out. And he's pointing it out. It is the rejected one who comes in the name of the Lord. This fits Jesus perfectly in perfect fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of Psalm 118. And yet they were oblivious to what was happening. In their rejection of Jesus, they were really rejecting the truth of the scripture. While at the same time, unwittingly fulfilling them. In the resurrection, the stone rejected, Jesus, is made by God to be the chief cornerstone. You see, the chief cornerstone in a building was the most prominent and the most important stone. All the other stones aligned with the truth, if you will, of that cornerstone. In the church family, God is building a building. As Peter says, we're a spiritual building. And in this building, Jesus is repeatedly stated to be the chief cornerstone. We all align with the truth of him. Notice the emphasis in the New Testament. Acts 4.11, this is the the stone which was rejected by you builders, as Peter's addressing the, the religious leaders, which has become the chief cornerstone in the resurrection. Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 1 Peter 2.7, therefore to you who believe he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, rejecting the word, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then quoting from Psalm 118.23, it says, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. God took the chosen one who was rejected by the builders, that's by the religious leaders, and made him the most important part of God's redemptive program. Indeed, he is the chief cornerstone. Everything depends on him. Everything aligns with him. He is the cornerstone that properly holds everything together. This was most clearly a God thing. This was his doing. He took the one rejected by the leaders, the decision makers, who thought they were building God's work. Well, God took what they rejected and in the ultimate triumph made him the chief cornerstone. How is that to say your work is a complete, total disaster? Their work. I don't know what they're trying to build with, but it wasn't with the right stone. Jesus is the most valuable and important part of the structure that God is building. The most important part of God's entire plan and program. This is awesome. It is marvelous in the eyes of all who have eyes to see. Application. Verse 43. Therefore I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. 
Well, as is often the case in parables, people arrive at different conclusions on some of the details because the language is such that it can legitimately be understood in different ways. And that is the case here. There are a number of views, two main ones. And uh, as to how this verse, verse 43, should be understood. And theologically, the problem, not the problem, that's not necessarily a problem, but <laughs> as far as in how to properly understand it, it can be a challenge. Uh, theologically, both are right if properly understood and applied. So clearly Jesus is targeting the religious leaders as they themselves understood, as we see in verse 45. So let's talk about two, the two main different views. How do we understand verse 43? How do we understand the application that Jesus is now making? Well, in the first view, when Jesus says the kingdom is taken from you, he's talking to the religious leaders. And is given to a nation bearing the fruit of it, meaning that as the leaders, they were responsible to respond and to promote the truth of the promised kingdom. In their leadership role, they influenced the entire nation. And they did, as we see at the crucifixion. Thus, they had the opportunity, the unique opportunity, to influence the entire nation in the direction of the kingdom. But they were unfaithful in this. They did not support John the Baptist's ministry, his call to repentance which was the condition for the kingdom being offered. They didn't get on board with that. They did not respond to Jesus' call to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So indeed, they were the builders. They were the builders who shaped the nation, as it were. And had they truly repented and led the nation in acceptance of the message to repent, they would have properly led the nation in the fruits of repentance. But this they failed to do. Consequently, that leadership role would be taken from them and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now the issue is, okay, what is this other nation that's replacing them? The word nation, ethnos, is singular here. It's not plural. It's not the nations. It's a nation, singular. And has the basic meaning of people, of people. Well, consistent with the emphasis on Israel's leadership, religious leadership, essentially being in view, this first view takes this to refer to a future people who will also be Jewish leaders, who will properly lead the nation in the fruits of repentance. Well, fast forward to the day of the Lord. Zechariah 12 emphasizes that in the day of the Lord, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will find their strength in the Lord of hosts, and they will inspire the nation of Israel. Zechariah 12.5. Zechariah 12.10 says that in that day, God will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, quote, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, led by the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, saying that their house is left to them desolate and they would see him no more until they say to him, for they truly recognize him for who he is, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this first view, to summarize, in, uh, this first view is that verse 43 is saying that the religious leaders in Israel were privileged 
to have the opportunity to lead the nation in regard to the kingdom through the fruits of repentance, but they failed. Consequently, this privilege would be given to another group of religious leaders, of Jewish religious leaders, in the future, and they would bring forth the fruits of repentance, eventuating in the kingdom being ushered in. That's one view. A second view, and and actually the more prominent view, is that the idea here is that the kingdom role assigned to the leadership in Israel during the time of Christ failed in what they should have done. Therefore, this kingdom role of preparing people for the kingdom is now taken from them and given to another people. That is the church, which is made up mostly of Gentiles who will bring forth the proper fruits of this kingdom calling. Now, a key argument for this second view is found in 1 Peter 2. Here, Peter calls the church, quote, a holy nation. Same word. And in that very same context, he quotes from Psalm 118. This would argue that the people now given the kingdom mandate is the church. We have a role now to fulfill in preparing people for the kingdom. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you, the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation who a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, ethnos, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then one other reference as far as the church uh, being a nation, if you will, Romans 10 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses say, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. This is the Gentile church. It's not just Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, but predominantly Gentile as you go along in history. So Thomas Constable says, this is what and he represents this view, Uh, what God did was transfer responsibility for preparing the kingdom from Israel and give it to a different group, namely the church. Now, as a footnote, verse 43 is often cited as evidence for replacement theology. The idea that the church has now replaced Israel and that God is now forever done with Israel as a nation. Well, that is patently false. The Bible is clear that this is not true. Now, God has temporarily set Israel aside. This is Romans chapter 11. But he will still yet fulfill all of his covenant promises to her. Also, Romans 11. By the way, the antecedent in verse 43 is specifically targeting the religious leaders. Their privileged role was now being taken from them and another people group namely the church led by the apostles, would now have the privilege in taking the lead in God's kingdom program. This, in effect, means taking the message of salvation to people, involving repentance and faith. 
so that they too might have part in the kingdom. This is the ultimate issue in the scriptures, whether you're going to be in the kingdom or not. Stanley Toussaint says, For the first time the king speaks openly and clearly to someone outside the circle of disciples about a new age. This is full proof that the kingdom was no longer near at hand. Verse 44. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Now some have pointed out that this verse is not found in some manuscripts, but it should also be pointed out that it is undisputed in the parallel passage of Luke 20, verse 18. And it's found there essentially verbatim to what we have here in verse 44. So it is unquestionably legitimate. Uh, What we have in Luke 20, verse 18, is this. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, verse 44 is also difficult in that there are two different ways of looking at it. And again, theologically speaking, both are consistent with sound doctrine. The first view says that falling on the stone and having it fall on you are essentially related to the same reality of judgment. The idea then is stumbling over Jesus' identity results in being broken with ultimately the result of him falling on you and with crushing judgment. Both being broken and being ground to powder picture judgment. And the argument for this view is seen in that Scripture consistently uses this imagery of Israel stumbling over the truth of Christ in the sense of being offended by the truth of Him, thus resulting in them being broken in judgment. Let me show you strong Scripture backing here. Isaiah chapter 8. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel. And as to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, trap and a snare. And among, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And then here in the New Testament, uh, nothing has changed. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And then 1 Corinthians one twenty three. we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. 1 Peter 2.8, a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word. Thus, we consistently see the idea of stumbling over Christ is characteristic of unbelief and resulting judgment in relation to Israel in particular. And that may well be what is in view here in verse 44. That certainly fits the priests, the chief priests and the Pharisees, who we see in verse 45 discerned that indeed this was spoken in reference to them. Well, in addition, we note that 1 Peter 2.8 borrows from Isaiah 8.14 in applying the idea of stumbling to those who are lost. They stumbled or fell on the stone of Christ And the result will be Christ smashing them in eternal judgment if they don't come to repentance. Brian Bell says, Israel stumbled over Christ. The church is built upon Christ. Well, another view. Another view takes falling on this stone to be a a different concept than the stone falling on you. 
the word but can be a contrast. You can take it different ways, but it can be a contrast. This view would take falling on the stone and being broken as relating to repentance. Brokenness at times is indicative of repentance in the scriptures. For example, David in his repentance says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. This view would argue that the key ministry of the prophets, those are the servants in the parable. The key ministry of the prophets was calling the people to repentance, culminating in John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance. This was the key fruit the servants, the prophets, came looking for. In the context In verse 43, Jesus has just said the kingdom would be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, which is argued by this view to be the fruits of repentance necessary to enter the kingdom. The thought then extends into verse 44 with the falling on the stone and resulting brokenness being indicative of these fruits, namely that of repentance. This view would argue that the language here seems to make a contrast between falling on the stone, which is one thing, and having it fall on you, which is another. So this second view says to fall on Christ, the stone, is to be broken. And in that brokenness, come to repentance and thus avoid judgment. However, to not be broken in repentance results in the rock of Christ falling on you and grinding you to powder. David Gazik says... The choice before the religious leaders is the choice before every person. We can be broken in humble surrender before God or be completely broken in judgment. The imagery for the crushing stone is traced back to Daniel 2, where Christ ultimately is shown to be the smiting stone, which crushes the world in judgment as he comes to set up his kingdom. Well, the symbol of a stone is often used in relationship to Christ, In the prophetic scriptures, it's used in a number of different ways. The rejected stone, the chief cornerstone, the stumbling stone, the foundation stone, the tested stone, the precious or costly valuable stone, and the smiting stone. In the context here, in Matthew 21, the main point, and remember, in a parable, the main point is the main point. And in the context, the main point is that of judgment on those rejecting Christ who will ultimately experience a pulverizing judgment of total destruction. This definitely pictures Christ as the final judge. John 5.22, the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. Verse 45. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. You think he's talking about us? I think he's talking about us. (laughs) Yeah, right. Finally, these religious leaders understood that the parable was really essentially about them and that in labeling the vine dressers as wicked men who should be destroyed and replaced, they were really calling for their own judgment. They were slow to get it, 
But in the end, they, they did get Christ's point. But instead of the fruits of repentance, in keeping with kingdom truth, we see their response in verse 46. But they got the point of the parable. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Amazingly, the truth of the stone being rejected by the builders did not even phase them. They took none of this to heart. They paid no attention to how Christ perfectly fits Psalm 118 in terms of the Messianic prophecies being fulfilled in him. They knew what Christ was saying, but they were not open to the truth. How ironic that Christ, in effect, told them straight to their faces what was happening and how it perfectly matches the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures. And yet they were not open to the truth. You see, there is never enough evidence for a rebel heart. Note they sought to lay hands on Jesus, wanting to destroy him, but they exercised some restraint at this point because they feared the multitudes who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Now, note the general populace did recognize Jesus as a prophet, but they did not recognize him as the Son of God. They did not recognize him as Messiah God, and that is the key issue. It's not enough to recognize Jesus as merely a prophet, as even cultists will do, even as some Jews will do. Muslims do. Others do. It's not enough to recognize Jesus as merely a prophet. It's not enough to recognize him merely as a deliverer, as a savior. He must be recognized for who he is as God savior. There's the drawing. There's the line that's drawn. He must be recognized as Messiah God. This is why John wrote the whole gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And believing, you may have life. And it must be personal from the heart. Thomas, my Lord and my God, you've believed. That's what it means. This is saving faith. These religious leaders, in their blindness, went about fulfilling prophecy that was made as plain as the day before them. And the same is true today. The more things change, the more they remain the same. People in their rebellion don't realize that in fact they are fulfilling prophecy. Even when they are point blank shown the truth of it. Here's this meme. How did people in Noah's day respond to the warning of God's coming judgment? Well, the same way they're responding today. That's what Christ said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. We often quote Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a key verse. But you know, there's a, a context to that verse. And it is in Peter addressing the religious leaders, the rulers, as it says. Notice what he said. Be, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You crucified, God raised from the dead. By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected 
by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is who Jesus is. He is the stone rejected by the religious leaders in Israel. But God raised him from the dead and made him the chief cornerstone. And this is marvelous in our eyes. If you have eyes to see and you believe it, it's a marvelous thing. I mean, this prophecy is given a thousand years before the time of Christ. Fulfilled to the letter in him. How could this be? It's a God thing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, the eyes of the unbelieving reject Jesus as the Christ. Even when the prophetic scriptures are made very plain before them. But in the eyes of those who are believing, we know and we believe and we see that he is God's chief cornerstone. We see this is God's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, this is the ultimate question. Who is Jesus in your eyes? Who is he? Are you rejecting or are you believing on him as your foundation, as your stone, the chief cornerstone? Let's have our closing song and then I'll close this in prayer.